Ming. And I'm Suba. Welcome back to another episode of the Safe Ad Podcast, where we discuss all things medical aesthetics. Today, we are joined by our dear colleague and friend, Dr. James Olding. <laughs> Dr. James Olding wears multiple hats. He's an aspiring oral maxillofacial surgeon, advanced aesthetic practitioner, and he's also the director of an aesthetic training academy, Interface Aesthetics. Welcome, Dr. James Olding. Oh, we want to say congratulations on your nomination for the Aesthetic Awards. I understand you've been nominated for three awards, one for Interface Aesthetics and two for... Dr. James Olding. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hi, James. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, you've done a very good job of introducing me so far. So, uh, yeah, basically, as you said, aspiring MaxFax surgeon, done quite a few years of MaxFax before, and now just completing my dental studies at King's College. We'll be aiming to graduate in 2021, and then moving into higher specialist training then. And in addition to that, an aesthetic practitioner. I've had my own practice for around four and a half years now. And more recently, in the last 18 months, have been running the Aesthetic Training Academy Interface Aesthetics. So um, really focusing more on the teaching side of aesthetics and also trying to draw in, uh, trying to campaign and trying to make the aesthetics industry a bit safer and better for patients as well. So they're kind of the main the main kind of professional hats that I have at the moment. Can you just tell us a little bit more about how you got into aesthetics? So I was always interested in facial surgery, head and neck surgery from kind of medical school. I trained at the University of Bristol and they allowed, well, they gave us the option of applying to do Erasmus, yeah. where we were able to go and study abroad for six months. And uh, so I, I tried to learn Spanish as quickly as I could. And then I managed to get a place to go to Granada. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, I was with a Max Fax surgeon. That's really where Max Fax became kind of a big interest for me. And then in addition to that, I saw all of the aesthetic stuff that they were doing, in addition to the reconstructive stuff. So I think the interest in kind of the non-surgical aesthetics grew kind of alongside the surgical side yeah um, but i only came to really discover and, and start exploring that when i was a bit more established as a doctor yeah so i think that's where it came from really. oh so tell us what did you enjoy in the head and neck surgery particularly so firstly i was exposed to head and neck cancer reconstruction so i, f- I was just completely imagine as a third year medical student i was mm. just completely blown away yeah uh, by kind of the flaps and stuff that they were doing so that was the first thing. And then beyond that, as I kind of did more uh, work experience, I'm more exposed in an elective as well in MaxFax. I was exposed more to trauma. Yeah. I found that really interesting as well. And really, really, I enjoyed kind of the hands-on side, but also saw the amazing kind of positive effect you can have on patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just from starting at a baseline and doing an aesthetic procedure, but actually someone having quite significant soft tissue or hard tissue injury and basically putting them back together yeah so um that was really what got me interested and kind of realized i had quite a passion for that yeah that's great i actually wanted to say so from from that how did you then get into aesthetics so through working in hospital and kind of being interested in those areas i think i just basically came across kind of aesthetics more and more uh, from the non-surgical side and i was always interested in as i say kind of the aesthetic as well as the reconstructive side of kind of head and neck. So I think I just did some research into some courses and decided to kind of take the plunge 
uh, and do one. And when I did it, I was really interested in the kind of the, the hands-on side, um, and it was really nice to see kind of what good results you could achieve from a non-surgical point of view. Mm -hmm. So definitely not kind of choosing one over the other, but it was quite nice to kind of increase repertoire and see actually a lot of stuff can be achieved non-surgically from an aesthetic point of view, whereas kind of 10, 20 years ago, everything had to be done surgically, really. So people yeah, definitely. wait for things deteriorated and go for a facelift. Yeah. Whereas now you can kind of do tweakments and um, do bits here and there, yeah, which yeah. are less dramatic and mm -hmm. often more acceptable to many patients. Yeah, definitely. And I guess back in the days, the perception of what people wanted in terms of their own beauty standards was also very different from how it is now. So I guess back in the days, people wanted more of that really pull up, really tight face look, whereas nowadays people are probably opting more for a natural look. So there is also a change in the standards of what people are looking for, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Being Having a subtle look and a subtle outcome is definitely what most patients look for now and they often explicitly say that when you speak to them yeah um, that they look pretty subtle yeah so can you just tell us about how from becoming an aesthetic practitioner did you decide to start your own training academy so number one i've always liked teaching i think as we're all doctors so kind of that's kind of part and parcel of yeah. what we have to do <laughs> our career whether it's you're an f1 doctor teaching medical students or an sho teaching f1s or registrar teaching shows so i think that's partly in our blood to some degree mm. I think it came from two sides, really. I mean, I was already working full-time in Max Hacks before going to dental school when I started to see, actually, and I was already practicing as a practitioner in aesthetics, I started to see quite a lot of complications from patients attending the emergency department. Uh, I was working at the Royal London Hospital and patients coming in with basically acute, severe complications of usually dermal filler procedures mm. and a lot of time those procedures were being done by people who perhaps didn't have the right level of training or they weren't healthcare professionals basically yeah so i was basically coming at it from both sides obviously from my aesthetic practitioner point of view i was interested in that side and how to kind of create the best outcomes for patients and then from the nhs max fact side i was seeing the other side of the coin which was the patients coming in with the complications so that really got me thinking actually it would be quite nice to do something to kind of move the debate forward and yeah. try and improve the situation in the UK with aesthetics. Yeah. And that was kind of where the seed of the idea sprung up. Yeah. And then started really doing more research, putting it into action and saw that there was actually quite a demand still for among healthcare professionals for level of training. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Give us some of the examples that you came across when you were working at the Royal London then. What kind of stuff did you see in terms of complications? Yeah, so probably a couple of ones that really stood out were to do with lips. Mm. One male and one female patient in different time periods and just with severe, severe lip swelling. And on one occasion, the patient had severe lip swelling and she had already mentioned that she'd had it done before and she yeah. had an allergic reaction. And she even told her practitioner about this and they still did the lip filler again because the patient basically said that she really wanted the lip filler. So oh. kind of unthinkable that a healthcare professional would have done that, really, yeah. Yeah. knowing that there was going to be an allergic reaction. Even if a patient is begging you yeah. to do something, you're going to cause them harm, you don't do it. So that was one. And I remember having a long conversation with her in the emergency department mm. about basically what should be the next steps. Because that's the other thing, because you have these independent practitioners or people who aren't registered and therefore de facto they aren't regulated by the GMC, GDC or NMC, yeah. there is no recourse for these patients to, to do anything because yeah. 
one, are you going to send them back to their practitioner who has done not a good job? So ethically, should you be telling them to do that? Yeah. Who should you be referring to? Should you be referring them into an outpatient clinic at your hospital? And then that's using NHS resources. And then therefore, we should actually go back a step and prevent that happening. Yeah. So that patients have that kind of level of care. And I think another case, again, would have been a lip filler. And it was a male patient. And in his case, it was just insane amount of product had been put in the lip. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So complete, I mean, I would call it a negligent amount of negligent treatment, really, because mm. it was such a huge amount of product. I think he told me, like, well over a mil had been put in just in the upper lip. Right. And in addition to that, we didn't know what product had been used. We didn't know if it was hyaluronic acid or if it was something else. So if there had been a vascular occlusive event, we would have been less clear about how to manage it. So yeah. all of these little things, basically, can be really, really bad for the patient's care. Yeah. Cause long-term and long-lasting yeah because is it true when if these patients come into the nhs under ed there's not much that you can do as a doctor or max fax surgeon am i right in saying that so the, the funny thing is it depends on the individual's uh kind of level of knowledge and skills so to be honest i think even among healthcare professionals we need to have more training in terms of recognizing and dealing with complications because the difference between dealing with a patient who's got vascular occlusion using a permanent filler is completely different to one who's had hyaluronic acid because for someone who's had hyaluronic acid and they've got an impending necrosis in their face the solution can be quite simple but even with that solution being highlighted which is the enzyme we use yeah. most A&E departments don't actually have that enzyme yeah. in the department mm -hmm. and I remember the Royal London did but for example other hospitals that I've worked in don't have that so just little things like that just show that actually the framework still isn't there and we're as healthcare professionals and the NHS we're being put in these difficult positions because of a lack of a framework and a lack of regulation which really should be the responsibility of the government. So but what are your thoughts about these patients coming into the NHS because obviously it incurs costs to the NHS so for example like you said the Royal London happened to have higher lace and you were able to treat this patient but had Royal London not have the higher lace what would be the next call to action like how would you manage that yeah quite honestly I, I really don't know how be supposed to manage that i know on a personal professional level i would know exactly how to manage it yeah i've actually managed a case of this in my own private practice um, the question would be both in terms of my uh, kind of med medical legal aspect as well hmm. so for example even though i may have the knowledge and skill probably more than most people in the department to deal with it i would still have to talk with seniors within the department exactly. and also within my own specialty yeah. which again delaying things so actually again there's no clear framework to these things and that's that's not really the fault of us healthcare professionals i think it's something which again needs to be clarified at, at a high level really yeah because i think personally i've had experience where a patient had come in with that kind of problem but i think it wasn't my patient as such but i heard from a colleague of mine that they then send the patient back to their practitioner which is, That's I think, what most places would be doing. Because, like you said, a lot of hospitals also don't stock the highly. So while you're in hospital, it's it's almost impossible to treat the patient anyway, even if we wanted to. Jim, which brings to our next question, which is the current regulations in the United Kingdom. And what exactly are they? So in terms of actual legislation, there is... So there are a couple of ways that we are de facto regulated. Unfortunately, there's kind of a two-tier system of regulation. So 
yourselves and and I as GMC registered practitioners, de facto we are regulated by the GMC. Yeah. Because if there is anything that goes wrong with our practice, the patient reports us. If we do not behave immediately in a way that is is is, is helping the patient in terms of their, their well being and their care, then we will be liable to um, disciplinary action and possibly legal action as well. Yeah. So GMC, GDC, NMC, HCPC practitioners de facto have some level of regulation, but legally anyone can inject so mm. someone can just walk off the street they can do a so-called non-medics course and learn to do injectables and then they will just be able to inject they'll be able to uh, kind of order demophil online so in that respect there's regulation for the people who are the least of our worries and the people who should be more of a concern aren't regulated at all now in terms of the actual treatments provided there is also some difference between dermal filler and botulinum toxin, which is the main. The botulinum toxin, the rules are quite clear because it's a prescription medicine. Yeah. It's regulated by the MHRA, so very clear you can't advertise the use of any treatment related to botulinum toxin. And obviously needs to be prescribed by a prescriber, which needs to be a doctor, dentist or a prescriber nurse. And then in addition to that, there are some other really important rules, and these have been clarified and emphasised in recent reports which are that there needs to be face-to-face -face prescribing. So remote prescribing is illegal. However, somewhere along the chain, there are many people doing this because remote prescribing still is rife throughout our, throughout our industry. Yeah. So that means basically there can't be a doctor somewhere remote just basically taking calls from beauticians or other health practitioners who want prescribers and just saying, so the patient wants upper face Botox done, okay, I'll prescribe 100 units of Botox. They have to see that patient face-to-face. -face. Yep. So that is quite an important step in the regulatory framework, but again, like I say, it's often not followed. Yep. Um, that's quite clear by the current situation in the UK. I understand that you also have a lot of connections in like Brazil and things like uh, like Spain. How do you, can you explain to us what is the difference between the regulations that we have in our country versus say those countries? Sure, so the UK really is a outlier on the issue globally. And if you look at a country such as Brazil, where I have a lot of colleagues and I've kind of worked there for a short period of time, yeah. the, the healthcare professionals are really quite astounded at the lack of regulation in the UK and the fact that anyone can legally inject in the in brazil for example the main debate over the last 10 years has been between dentists and doctors right so obviously the debate is between both of those very competent practitioners about yeah. who can do what people who aren't qualified do not even come into the, the question and so nurses are not allowed to do it there sorry nurses are not allowed to do um, these procedures nurses are right? allowed to do it legally but the practice just isn't that common so again i think part of it again comes down to public perceptions as well. So here, if you speak to people, many people just aren't aware that anyone can do it, but shouldn't really be doing it. Whereas in Brazil, if you speak to someone on the street, they would never dream of going to see somebody who wasn't a doctor or dentist to have their procedures done. Yeah. So in addition to that, Brazilian government even passed legislation in 2012, literally defining in legislation what the roles of healthcare practitioners are, which obviously makes it a lot easier for patients to feel confident in terms of if they're going to someone knowing that they're going to be a doctor doing this, this and this, or a dentist doing so on and so forth. Yeah. Do you think a cultural perception plays a part in this? So, for example, in Brazil, I imagine, culturally, I think more people would be inclined to seek professional, if they were to get any treatment, they would pre prefer for it to be done by someone professional, whereas 
in this country, I think that's less of a concern. So I have spoken to many people who have no issues going to get their, say, for example, lip fillers done at their local beauty salon. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I think public perception is a huge amount to do with the current situation that we're in. And quite rightly, in Brazil, people would, like I say, lots of my friends and colleagues from there, I find it hard to think of anyone who would go and just see anyone on the street to have that done. Yeah. But importantly, legislation influences public perception. So I think the government has to take the lead on that. We can see that. But just look at cultural issues over the last kind of couple of decades. Yeah. The government introduced legislation, public opinion followed suit. So I think by doing that, the government really has to take the lead and then public perceptions will follow. Because if people are, are, I mean, just a few years ago, people would be exposed to reality TV shows where you'd have the, the stars going to houses, to Botox parties, where beauticians would be injecting kind of on the bed upstairs. Yeah. So if you see that on TV, then it normalises a lot of the behaviour. Mm, so definitely. Think, yeah, there's yeah. a lot that needs to be changed. Sibel <laughs> was like dazed, can you, can you tell? <laughs> no, I wasn't. I was going to say that, but now they've changed, they've kind of changed the regulation, right? There's a little bit of a regulation about injecting was it lip fillers in underage? So there is a little bit of push from the government to start legislation on non-surgical aesthetics, right? So that's a that's a bill that's been introduced. So it's not actually passed into law yet, but you're quite right. And there's a big uh, campaign. For example, the British Association of Oral Maxillofacial Surgeons, they've thrown their weight behind that campaign as well, which is basically saying that under 18s should not be able to have aesthetic treatments. In reality, in the industry, even under 25s, if you're a kind of a competent and and kind of competent healthcare practitioner, then you're going to be thinking twice with yep. younger patients. And because a lot of the treatments are for the aging process. Lip fill is slightly different because some people just want that so-called glam look. They want a bit more of, of volume there. But absolutely under 18s, I know very few people who would treat well, I don't really know anyone who would treat under 18-year-old patients with these things. Yeah. Are there any regulations within aesthetic training itself? So, again, not so much. Again, there is some de facto regulation, but it is, once, once more, it's kind of a two-tier system. So, for example, being a training course that wants to promote excellence and adhere to best practice guidance, I ensure that I work with reputable um, product providers. So, in my case, that's Allegan. Mm -hmm. I ensure that my course is insured by the two leading providers of malpractice insurance in the UK and those two providers would not insure a course that trains non-healthcare practitioners, if that makes sense. Yeah. So all of these layers basically introduce de facto levels of regulation but you then kind of divide into two camps um, in terms of whether you're training people who should be trained. Hmm. So like I say, de facto regulation, if you want to become known as a training academy doing the right thing, there are lots of steps you need to take and they include, for example, having those malpractice providers. If you can offer qualifications like regulated qualifications such as the level seven, that's a really big thing as well because we know that that's been proposed as the new best practice kind of gold standard qualification uh, too. So if you're kind of ticking off those boxes, then you're kind of adhering to the de facto regulation that does exist. Yep. But um, you can also be uh, an academy that doesn't do any of those and still have a lot of a lot of business. I know I get a lot of inquiries from people who are non-medics all of the time. Yeah. And if I decided to train those, I'd probably be a millionaire by now. But yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Just don't don't do. 
because there's so many training academies in the UK itself, and I know some of them they do open their doors to non-healthcare professionals. So if I'm starting off as a as as someone that's interested in aesthetics, where should I start? So I think doing the research first is really important. So a lot of people become interested because they talk to colleagues or friends, or for example, where I'm working with a lot of dentists at the moment, junior dentists, and usually people in a few years above them, they may see their Instagram accounts and think, "Wow, it's amazing." I'd say get a real, get a realistic. Uh, insight number one into mm. the profession because obviously we can present kind of how marvelous and wonderful it is and the befores and the afters but actually it can be really challenging really rewarding but it's definitely not easy to get kind of good results and forge like a good reputation yeah. so if they do the research and speak to as many people as you can and then really do the research in terms of the training so making sure that you are choosing a reputable provider that the certificate that you get will be will enable you to go and get malpractice insurance and start training. Consider whether you want to be doing a regulated versus an unregulated training course. Something like a regulated course, like a level seven, will obviously hold you in very good stead for the stead for the future. It will also give you much more hands-on experience and mentorship. But on the other hand, it's more expensive. Yeah. So it's kind of that cost benefit um, in terms of what you want in your career and how quickly you want to progress. Yeah. So in this country at the moment, because there is no set pathway for training in aesthetics as such, can you tell us a little bit more about what level seven aesthetic training entails? Because you said that is probably the gold standard at the moment. So the level seven is the only regulated injectables qualification. So it's off core regulated. That means by virtue it is regulated qualification. So it has a, has a syllabus that needs to be followed. The assessment process is, is externally verified. And then at the end of the qualification, you are awarded academic credit. So you're given a new qualification as opposed to, for example, an unregulated qualification such as a foundation course, which may be just one day yeah. where you're given a certificate of attendance, but you're not given any academic accreditation. Now, people often talk about fully accredited courses. Often they're talking about CPD accreditation. Mm. Mm. So all of these nuances are really important to try and get people moving into the industry to understand. Because someone saying their course is fully accredited is not wrong, yeah. but they need to be whether they're talking about is it CPD accredited or are there 60 academic credits associated with this course, for example, in the level seven qualification. Yeah. So that's why the level seven is seen as superior. It follows a set syllabus. It's externally verified. It involves kind of many months of training involving theory, hands-on practical experience where you're kind of directly observed look um, and treating and injecting patients yeah and also importantly differs to kind of masters and things like that mm. which already exist in that because there's a big hands-on component where you have to put up a portfolio of 40 patients that you've seen so the level seven itself is quite an evolving process as well it used to be a level seven certificate and it's now moved to a diploma that was basically because the previous provider well, the awarding organisation has now changed. All of the providers are now upgrading it to a diploma. So even the level seven itself is evolving and changing, but it still remains the, the so-called gold standard qualification. And whether it will become obligatory or the norm in the future, it's hard to say. Yeah. I think more and more it's becoming the norm and more of the inquiries I get are with regard to undertaking the level seven. Right, okay. But, there's still a desire to kind of get into the industry as quickly as possible 
and there is always that temptation of just doing a one-day course and theoretically being allowed to move into it is obviously a lot more cost-effective. Yeah. So you were talking about Level 7 being an equivalent to a formal diploma now, but I know there are many universities that still do a Master's in Aesthetic Medicine. So how are they different? It's just slightly different. Number one, in terms of the academic credits. Mm. So the obviously the, the Masters will be more academic credits than the diploma, but also, also the structure of the qualifications. So the Level 7, very specific in that it's, a very much focused on being a hands-on qualification in injectables yeah. as opposed to an academic one where you might study lots of modules do research in a certain area write a dissertation etc this is very much focused around the building up a portfolio of the patients so it's more hands-on yeah exactly in that respect it's different it's, it's very much been designed with that in mind to try and give a, a hands-on injectable qualification and also a qualification which can be taken for a complete beginner mm. to get them up to a level of competency as well as someone who's already established in the field and improved their level of competency mm. so did you say as someone who's starting off i can can apply for a level seven course or do i have to take the foundation first so the foundation course is included in the level seven so the level seven oh, has okay. four stages now there are some ways that you can actually skip some stages for example if you're an advanced practitioner who's done mm -hmm. a foundation course you can skip to a later stage of the course but yeah the main stages are foundation course number one mm -hmm. number two you undertake theoretical learning which covers the main syllabus of all the modules so for example facial assessment use of botulinum toxin use of dermal for example then you have the hands-on injecting side so you have basically face-to-face -face treatment days where you build up a portfolio of 40 patients and then the final stage is the assessment stage which now consists in written assessments and part of the assessment is also your final injection of a patient which are known as dots basically yeah direct procedural skills is filmed and then that is kind of treated as your your examination as well your practical side oh nice and is this level seven class available for healthcare professionals or anyone can Absolutely. take it Absolutely, yeah. So that's a good thing. It also introduces another layer because they have to be registered healthcare professionals as well. So they must be healthcare professionals that are registered with their professional statutory regulatory body. So at the moment, there aren't any refresher courses. So say, for example, like, you know, there are some advanced practitioners who might have been working for three or four years, but they might not be doing many of, say, for example, cheek fillers as such. There aren't any refresher courses as such that offer something that's quite targeted. Do you know of any academies that run them or is that something that you would consider or do you think that would be useful? I think I think that probably the, the way that that person would uh, kind of seek out the training that they need would be looking into academies that offer certain masterclass courses. Yeah. So again, there may be some overlap with what they've already already done mm. but I think for someone like that the option would be either look for a masterclass course yeah. so for example we're introducing a new course in 2021 which is just focused specifically on the use of cannulas yeah because that's basically responding to demand of our delegates mm -hmm. because we do include cannula use on our advanced course but actually dedicating an entire course just to simply cannulas has been in demand for quite some time so that's one example and then another way that someone could undertake a refresher would be by seeking out kind of more bespoke training, so one-to-one -one training, which again is something that we offer. A lot of the major training academies offer that as well. And for example, I've got one delegate now who is undertaking 
six half days of kind of bespoke training where we can basically design the session to what that delegate wants to cover. Right. Uh, therefore, we can be a lot more flexible and um, we obviously take care of organising the patients. Mm. Uh, more of a bespoke training approach in that regard. Yeah, that's great. So tell us a little bit more about interface aesthetics. So at the moment, in terms of clinical teachers, there are three of us yeah. working at the moment. And then we, in total, we are seven in terms of staff. So mm-hmm. we have assessors, we have kind of, um, kind of administrators, operations manager. So yeah, at the moment, we are still quite a relatively small training academy. Yeah. But we've made some good, some good progress in terms of our yeah. growth. And it's quite nice to have a kind of a growing team because it's yeah. just to on different expertise. Yeah. So of just of the three trainers, we come from variety of backgrounds, mm-hmm. both professionally and culturally and yeah. nationally and all of those things. So it's, it's really nice to draw on the different environments we work in. So we all have our own clinics. We, we have a mixture of surgeons, doctors, dentists. So I think as the team grows, that will improve even more. It's quite nice to have a small cohesive team, yeah. but it's also nice to get that balance between getting a, a variety of expertise so that we can give the most to our delegates. And I know like some practitioners always ask me about group size, like what is your group size in like a course? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that is an absolute non-negotiable for us. And it's something which I wish, I mean, I, I really tell everyone to really research into when they look for a course. So for our, our course, the maximum group size is three, maximum four per tutor. So if you're kind of doing an advanced or a foundation course, the maximum uh, you'll have is a tutor with three or four delegates around that patient. So that basically means that you're going to get much more hands-on time, you're going to get much closer to the patient, you're going to get much more opportunity to ask questions and get directly observed feedback as well. So I think when you kind of move on to larger groups, obviously it's going to be much more cost-effective as an academy, but the delegates just don't get as much out of it. Yeah. In an ideal world, you'd be doing kind of one-to-one or one-to-two training, which is the reality in our Level 7 course. Yeah. We usually have one-to-one or one-to-two but at least make keeping the groups as small as possible. I think it's a way to get the delegates the most out of their training and still kind of creates kind of a, a viable business model as well from, from the, the training academy perspective. Yeah. yeah. And so looking for next year, looking into next year, do you have any courses available for our practitioners? Yeah, we run um, monthly courses at the moment. Mm-hmm. So each month we'll have a weekend of courses, which we usually consist in. Usually it's a couple of cohorts of foundation. Uh, so we may have two or three tutors leading each group of three or four. So up to 10 to 12 delegates on the foundation course. And then we'll have on the second day, we usually have an advanced course and level seven mentorship. Most so James, tell us how has COVID and the pandemic affected aesthetics and also aesthetics training? So in terms of affecting aesthetics, so during the first lockdown, all aesthetic activity ceased, quite rightly, mm-hmm. obviously non-essential activity. So that had a big impact. For myself, probably slightly less of an impact because I wasn't solely invested in the aesthetics industry. But I know a lot of colleagues who, that was obviously their sole role, and I know they had a really difficult time. Yeah. So it's been a really tricky, I mean, for me, it's been difficult as well, but I know it's been more difficult for many people. Mm. From that respect, aesthetic provision, it's been really tough. And often people aren't always eligible for all the types of government support by the nature of our industry. Yeah. Some people kind of working as uh, self-employed or by limited companies. Really a big challenge. And for patients as well, because yeah. obviously patients are really 
love and need access to our services, but priorities, obviously, getting COVID under control is far more important. Yeah. And then from the training point of view, to be honest, it's it's a bit of a weird situation for Interface because Interface has half of Interface's life has been under COVID. Yeah. To be honest, it's part and parcel of kind of our, what we are now at the moment. We've kind of just had to adapt. Mm. And to be honest, we've still been able to grow and progress as a business yeah. um, in terms of viability of our model, even during COVID, which, yeah. to be honest, on one hand, you probably see your growth and think, oh, I wish it could be more. But in the context of having three or four months where we weren't able to give courses and then lots of uncertainty, having to cancel our courses in November as well because yeah. of the, the additional lockdown, mm-hmm. um, and we're still making headway. So in that respect, I think, yeah, you can still make progress in that regard, but it has been very difficult. Yeah. So really encouraging news about the vaccine and obviously hoping that 2021 is going to be yeah. a little bit more predictable. Yeah. But um, it's definitely had an impact on a day-to-day level in the training. It's just meant that we've had to update our policies. Mm-hmm. Already having small group training has been an advantage for us as well mm-hmm. because it means we're not grouping large amounts yeah. of people together. Yeah. Um, streamlining the day, and that's kind of where the administrative staff have been really important as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and making sure we screen our patients and, and, and delegates as well. So yeah. all of the usual or kind of organisational adjustments, but very much looking forward to 2021 and a bit more stability. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But kudos to Interface Aesthetics. You've definitely managed it very well because having growth during a global pandemic is not easy. So kudos to your business, definitely. <laughs> and I know that you've got, you've got some online training too, right? You guys have adapted where you've actually modified your... Is it to an online kind of... You have an e-platform for yeah. interfaces, that's yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think, to be honest, I think it's always good to try and see the, the, the benefits from these things. Definitely. And I think when COVID came, it was quite easy to just see the negatives. Mm. I mean, it was probably the same for you guys. We were drafted into work in hospital more. Yeah. So um, we kind of had other things on our plate. But when it came to actually having some time to think about this, and I wasn't able to do the face-to-face, that kind of pushed me into looking at changing our resources. So during COVID, kind of in the two to three months of downtime, basically designed a whole new online learning platform, which covers all aspects of the level seven syllabus. And that's quite a unique resource because it's a video based, a video tutorial based system. So from start to finish, kind of narrated tutorials, videos of kind of projections. That was really great, really, from actually using a bad situation to try and bring something good out of it. And we've had really good feedback about that as well. Yeah. And it also makes learning more accessible. It makes learning safer as well, especially during COVID times, to reduce the face-to-face contact. It means that when delegates do come and see us, more time is spent injecting. Yeah. So more time doing that. And then more recently as well, we've moved our theoretical content for the Foundation and Advanced course online as well. So instead of actually bringing the delegates in and spending the first couple of hours going through PowerPoint, we now deliver that via Zoom beforehand. And then it means on the day they just turn up and we just do the injecting on the day, which again reduces unnecessary face-to-face and give delegates more time to kind of assimilate the information as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. I think that's what people are actually looking out for because if you look at the practitioners that we talk to, that's what they're actually looking for, an online platform or like a digital platform where they can actually enhance their knowledge yeah. or refresh their knowledge before going into anything. You know how medics are. We always like to read before we go into anything. I like to be prepared, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. And how can we find interface aesthetics? 
Yeah, so you can either follow us on Instagram, which is uh, just Interface Aesthetics on Instagram, or one word, or if you go to www.interfaceaesthetics.co.uk, and that basically has all of the information on our website about course dates and also the details of each course, what you can expect to learn. There's some videos and educational videos on there as well. Awesome, and we'll drop a link down in our social media so that it will be easier for them to link to your website. So that brings us to the end of our podcast episode today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. From the inception of SafeApp, we we very much have shared exactly the same ethos in terms of what we think about the aesthetics industry and how we can improve it. And it's amazing to see how much uh, SafeApp has made progress kind of in line as well with the face yeah and that kind of started from the same standpoint in terms of wanting to make the industry safer for patients but also facilitate growth and progress for registered healthcare practitioners as well yeah so i think the the position you're coming from is amazing i think the progress you've made has been amazing i want to congratulate you as well on your nomination for the aesthetics awards as well yeah which is absolutely amazing and very much an incredible feat given that you've obviously your inception has been since such a short time as well. So I think very much from what I hear from my side as well, for my delegates who are training, that resource which can connect practitioners with patients in the area and also provides a, a reputable source of kind of uh, other practitioners, patients and information is something which is really, really needed in the industry. So I, I think you're 100% on the right track. I'm glad that your progress so far has been recognised in the Aesthetics Awards and I'm certain that the success will continue. So I think it's a really, really great resource that is very much needed in the industry. Thank you so much. So you can also find Dr. James Olding on the Safe App platform, which is available for download now on App Store and also Google Play. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining us today on our podcast. Thank you and to talk about some really important topics. And thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yay.